So my name is Cameron, and I'm one of the elders here at North Peace MB Church, and just uh, humbled and thankful for a chance to um, meet with you this morning to, to share. Humbled for the chance. It's kind of funny. I don't think Andrew put it that way when he was prepping to leave. <laughs> Pastor Andrew, when he was getting ready for sabbatical, it was more of a, hey, guys, guess what? But, <laughs> but it worked out pretty amazing, and I was reflecting on that this week just in his absence and our summer going through Psalms, and I really feel blessed to have had the opportunity to listen to really gifted men who love Jesus and who just have a desire and willingness to share, and it's an incredible honor for our church to have um, those of you among us who feel called in that way. So, you know, to Austin, thank you for the time, and to Graham and others. Um, I had a chance to speak with, uh, well, text with Andrew this week, and he sent me a picture from Southern California of an orange grove where they're staying at a retreat for the summer, and I felt of shooting them back to smoky haze of the hospital fields behind my house. But uh, pray for, well, we will pray for Andrew and Molly and the family. Tomorrow he begins his biblical leadership course, and through the season of rest and sabbatical, the other half of that is the importance of, you know, resetting, refocusing, and taking time apart from uh, the daily church life to actually, to actually focus on learning, growing in who he is as a pastor, a husband, a father, a friend. So uh, I'm grateful as a friend of his that he has that opportunity. Tiny bit jealous, like the Orange Grove in Southern California and uh, Disneyland and their adventures throughout the U.S. Uh, has been fun for them and fun for us to watch. But um, I was just joking on the, the way in that this morning I woke up in a bit of a panic just before 4 o'clock thinking, did I prep the wrong, the right psalm? And so actually from my phone I reached over and I go to Andrew's schedule and sure enough, no, I'm on, I'm on set. But interesting, I saw that we're exactly halfway through uh, their absence with us, so we're We've made it this far. We've promised, we've, we promised, but we assured him that we would do our best to ensure that there was still a congregation here <laughs> for when he returned. So thank you all for your participation. It's good, but uh, no, I'm uh, pretty excited to follow up after last week of uh, Psalm 42, where we learned last week, and this week focusing on Psalm 46. So I'm just going to read it for us. I think it's going to be on the screen. Not to put Harlan on the spot there. There we go. Thank you so much. So if you want to turn to uh, Psalm 46, um, if you would love to turn, but you don't have the means to turn, whether digital or not, we do have Bibles in the pew in front of you, and those are f uh, for you to take, if that would be helpful to you. So Psalm 46 begins with the title, God is our fortress. It says, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth. I found that word odd, so I uh, looked it up, and in the spirit of keeping with all things Charles Spurgeon over the last number of weeks, I don't have a quote of his in my sermon, but I don't want to break the chain, so I will say that he goes on note to say that could mean with a high-pitched instrument, where others say that it could be a choir of young women. Uh, no joke on how they're similar or how the Greek interpretation may have mixed that up. I'll leave that for Austin for a follow-up sermon. But it goes on. It's a song. Essentially, it's a song to be sung. And it said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, 
though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations range, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I'd just like to pray. Lord God, thank you for this song. Thank you, God, for this opportunity this morning to pause, to rest, to be still. God, thank you for a reminder of your safe refuge, a reminder of the strength of your fortress for us. We need it, God. We need to refocus. We need to step outside of ourselves sometimes and to look at your word and your promise and remember that is for us and it's for today. God, help us with that this morning. Help us to shake off distraction. Please don't let my fumbling with words or paper or notes be a distraction for anyone, but have the glory of who you are and the glory of what you would like to show us and remind us of. Be your focus this morning. So God, thank you for this time together. We are truly blessed. So this is actually a really beautiful psalm, and it's one that I hadn't spent a whole lot of time in other than the catchphrases that are very popular as, as evangelical Christians growing up. Um, but it's, I think it's, it's becoming one of my new favorites because it was really neat unpacking it a little bit and looking into some of the context that makes this song and some of those co-composers and, and participants who helped create it. But even before that, I, I, you know, when I think of the book of Psalms or King David in general, I have, uh, I'm led down a number of familiar thoughts because David in the Psalms leaves no shortage of visuals for us to be, you know, to, to go to in our minds. And, you know, much like me, uh, you might think uh, when you consider David of the Psalms, you might be uh, taken back to the thought of a shepherd boy you know, serving his father's sheep, saving them from bears and from lions. Maybe a slingshot-wielding giant killer is your go-to when you think of David. Maybe the close friend of Jonathan, the scriptures used to define what friendship, true friendship, especially between men, means. Maybe it's a mighty warrior victorious in battle or a comforting musician for Saul. Maybe it's a troubled man caught in sexual sin and murder troubled by his own desire for closeness to God and his own humanity and sinful nature. Or a poet king, as referenced last Sunday, which I thought was a real neat, again, visual for David. Maybe when you think of David in the Psalms, you think of a king running through hills, hiding in caves, uh, away from his son, who's trying to overtake his throne. And finally, of course, a man after God's own heart. I think that's one that you know, we often think of when we, when we think of David in Psalms. 
And any of these uh, visuals can really place us in a very niv a riveting uh, moment in time through scripture. We could find ourselves plopped right into a story with violence in action and grief and despair, with love and with sorrow, with every range of human emotion attached to a story when we read and reflect on the life of David. But when I think of David, it's a little, it's less, less than that. It's actually scarred by the memory of a movie from 1985. And it's a movie called King David. There's been a number of renditions, but this is one you probably found in your household if your parents were good Christian parents who just wanted to give a bunch of videos to the children and kind of leave them be. Uh, my mother just showed up this week from Edmonton, not for this, but it's kind of funny. Sorry, I know you didn't leave us to be, but you really you put on the, the VHS and, you know, King David must be fine for children. Uh, it is, in theory, <laughs> it is. But um, it's funny because it comes on, you know, I was looking up, when was that movie released? I'm like, 1985. I won't make you put up your hand if you were born in 1985 as not to cause any more division in the Christian church. But I was alive when the movie was made. And I'm sure for my mother it was a welcome uh, movie since it had been almost 30 years since Charleston Heston released The Ten Commandments. And for, Anyone watch that, The Ten Commandments, Charleston Heston? Yeah. All right, Richard, keep your hand. You're like, right on. Um, 1956, can you believe that, that when that came out? So, the generations of good Christian parents waited three decades for another good master release to influence their children with cinema. So, um, King David was there, and there's a, <laughs> you know, I was even reflecting, King David, yeah, and then good old Michael Landon, Highway to Heaven, that was kind of like around the same old time where now the households were thinking, wow, we're winning over Los Angeles and the making of all these wonderful films. Uh, that didn't quite happen like that. But for those of you under 40, um, there was a scene in the movie King David which I can't erase from my mind. And I thought of a few different ways or creative ways to share this scene because it deals with the innards coming outers. And I know there's a lot of, there's no kids zone, so I had to reflect on how I would share some of these stories. So I actually thought of my son, who's seven, and uh, like any good young kid who covets the little bit of screen time he earns throughout the week, he'll play Super Mario or maybe Mario Go-Kart. And one thing mom doesn't like to hear walking through the room was that guy died or I got him. So we were reflecting on that once and I was listening to him play his game and I walked by and he said, oh, he's talking to himself in the third person while he's playing, oh, you want to come and uh, face me? Well, I'm going to make you faint. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I'm like, what? And I, lo I loved the learning because they're like, mom's not going to hear the D word. So, uh, oh, I'm going to make you faint. You're going to feel it. So there's a scene in the movie King David where Saul, who is, is chasing after David, is enraged. And he is um, in a courtyard and there's a row of people singing. They're in robes, they look priestly, um, and they're singing songs, psalms. And Saul's outraged, and he pulls out his sword and begins deleting them one after one. And um, all the time yelling, where is David? Tell which way did he go? And one by one they fall, fainting, extinguished. Um, not giving up David's position, one after another, singing So I don't even remember what song they were singing. No doubt a common psalm, no doubt a common sentiment. 
But it was so impactful as a young person, probably far too young to watch that, especially in light of no other social media or reference to film at that time flooding. So it's one of those images that you're just kind of left with. But as a young person, I kind of thought when I read Psalms and when I would see that there was a choir, that there were others involved, maybe these sons of Korah, that these would be the men. These would be the men singing Psalms of joy, psalms of hope, and psalms reflecting on who they were and who God is, all the while being removed from the scene. And it really has uh, impacted some of the way I interact with the psalms, because one thing I like to do is really contextualize, you know, who are the writers? Why this song? How did they interact? How did they come up with these words? And to realize that some of these psalms was created and, and shared with such desolation, such pain, and uh, in some cases, um, fear in, in face uh, of certain death, deletion. Um, it actually has far more influenced my, my reading and my understanding of psalms. So this one is actually uh, particularly interesting in the way that... Um, it's presented. So this Psalms 46 is actually the second. Uh, Psalms 42, which we heard from last, uh, from Bob last week, shared that they're from uh, the sons of Korah, that these, these sons of Korah were involved in its composure. And this could be co-composers with David. It could be, you know, the men in the temple. It could be any one of those gatherings Bob alluded to. It could be someone hiding in the caves with David who composed this song. But um, it's not the first time we hear of the sons of Korah, and I found it quite interesting just to explore a little bit, like, who were the sons of Korah? And the answer actually for us is in um, uh, Numbers 16, and it's worth a little bit of a detour because it, I believe it actually lays the foundation for what Psalms 46 is getting at. And I would strongly encourage you when you go home and in your, in your reflection to read Numbers 18 and then follow it up with later 26 and how it relates to the Psalms. But I'll jump back there and I'll summarize for us. So in Numbers 16, it's actually where we're introduced to Korah. So not the sons of Korah, but Korah as a person. And uh, it's actually an interesting story where Korah and a number of others had made a plan to rise up and overtake Moses and Aaron. So you have the Israelites and, and they're encamped and there's some conflict. And at one point, Korah, two others and their communities or families, a congregation essentially say to Moses and Aaron, like, we have had enough of you. We are essentially going to overtake you. And of course, Moses uh, experienced great confliction and, and is praying to God throughout this time. Uh, deeply troubled, and um, it's quite fascinating because in verse 22 of number 16, these crowds are forming, and the crowds are forming against Moses and Aaron, and Moses essentially cries out to God saying, like, you know, God, uh, free us. Uh, God, you know, how are you going to respond? And so this congregation is gathered, and God actually says, step away from them, and I will deal with them. Move yourself away and those who else are holy and I will deal with them. And it's super interesting. There's a really neat parallel that I had glanced over in the past where actually Moses responds, no, God, you're going to do all of that? What if there's 
someone who's holy? What if there's a man who's holy? We see this beginning of an Abraham, Sodom, Gomorrah again, this reminder of a, a, a conversation with God like, don't be, don't wipe them out, all of them. So God actually responds and, and gives them an opportunity and says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah and the others, offering the opportunity to anyone in the congregation to disassociate themselves from the upheaval. And uh, it's interesting, yeah, Moses was pleading with the congregation to flee from Korah and the wicked men, to leave their camp and not touch nothing, to get away. And Moses goes later, and in verse 28 to 33, he says to some of the congregation that has fled from Korah, and it reads, Moses is speaking to them, and he says, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do these works, and that has not been done on my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they're visited by the fate, uh, the same fate as all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So I can't imagine what this scene would have looked like, but essentially there's a conversation that says, listen, like I know what's happening, Korah, and these others are rising up. You have an opportunity now to disassociate yourself with them because the Lord God of Israel will respond. And some do. And we go on to read that, um, uh, but if the Lord creates something new, Moses says, and if the grounds open its mouth and swallows them up and all that belongs to them, and they go down alive to Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground underneath them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished in the midst of the assembly. That's a pretty intense little story. <laughs> I don't know if you're, like, you're, you're, you're picking up what's happening, but could you imagine? Like, that's, I can't actually believe. I guess I can believe. I don't know. That's just a thing people say. It's ridiculous. But, you know, here's Moses saying to them, talking with God, give these men an opportunity. Give these families an opportunity to separate themselves. Some do. And Korah and the others are swallowed into the earth. I don't, uh, yeah, right after the earth opens up and swallows all who turned against Moses and Aaron. And the reason this sparked my interest is because we see that Korah was swallowed up and his friends and those with him. But obviously what becomes apparent is that the sons of Korah were not swallowed up into the earth. And actually later in Numbers, uh, in chapter 26 actually, we see a story literally stop and actually give special place for the sons of Korah. The story continues after the earth swallowed everyone up that there were more who rebelled and more who had decided to turn against Moses and Aaron, and Aaron, and a great plague came and wiped away the rest of them. And then later after that, Moses and Aaron were actually having a census of all men, over 20 I believe, and they were to register and essentially sign up, conscript for war and for battle. So it went through all the sons of the men of the camps who were still left, and it got to uh, in verse 11 talks in uh, Numbers 26. It got to Dathan and Abram, the same men who contended to, with Korah to overthrow Moses. Then it explicitly states that the sons of Korah did not die. So they didn't die, but you can be sure that they were there to witness the power of God, opening the mouth of the earth and devouring their father and his followers, men in other camps, women, children in other camps. They chose, of course, to side with Moses, trusting God, and watched the enemies of God, their own family, swallowed up into the earth. So, on that bright note, we jump back into Psalm 46. 
and um, really appreciating now some of these co-composers in this psalm, this song of God's goodness, this song of God's redemptive mercy and his power over creation. And we see, um, in fact, that Psalm 46 is widely viewed as a, a confidence song, a song of um, rich, uh, a rich foundation in knowing that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. And uh, interestingly enough, I found uh, that uh, Martin Luther, in his greatest distress, was known at times to have said the following. He said, let us sing the 46th Psalm in concert and then let the devil do his worst. That's terrible advice. <laughs> I would probably never give that from the pulpit, but Martin Luther was known to stir a few pots, so I'm not surprised to have seen that from him. But really, that is the undertone of the Psalms 46, that it is a psalm of confidence. And we'll talk about it in just a little bit. It's interesting in reflection as their second psalm related to the sons of Korah, where Psalms 42 starts off by saying, you know, rescue us, O God, and now it's turned to a confidence. So we read, I guess, in the first few verses, just even one to three, and we see how God is very much present with his people. You know, they felt it and experienced it very firsthand, like it was real in that moment, God's presence in the face of the enemies of God, which in turn were their enemies. We read in the, yeah, verse one, God is our refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So verse two is the interesting point in light of our understanding of the sons of Korah and their family, their ancestors, that they will not fear though the earth give away. It's not a metaphor. This is a reality of the sons of Korah. The earth gave way under the enemy of God. It's not hyperbole. It's not meant to paint a different picture. This is the story of their family. The earth gave away and swallowed up the enemy. The Red Sea parted and swallowed up the enemy of their exodus. God saved them continuously in similar situations. Though its waters foam, roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Again, a flood reference, a really very real and close reminder of God defeating his enemies. The earth obeys its creator. The seas listen to his voice and the mountains respond to his command. Verse four to six highlight what we might call the peaceful provision of God, that steadfast confidence in God's care and his nurture. It says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, rage the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The psalmist pictured an abundant, constant provision of a river for Jerusalem. And that image is actually significant because Jerusalem doesn't have any rivers, only a, a few small streams. Yet the prophets anticipated a day when a mighty river would flow from its temple, which itself is referenced in Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22. It seems as though the future reality of, was already in the mind of, in the midst of the sons of Korah, the psalmist David. It goes on to say, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. All the blessing and provision of the city of God comes because of God's presence. Because of his presence, she's more firmly set than the earth which shall be moved. The city is established because God shall help her. 
So yes, I am sorry, ladies, but Austin did hit it on the, the, head, uh, the nail on the head a number of weeks ago uh, when he said that, he only, I think he referenced that this verse probably doesn't do justice on a coffee mug. It sounds really good, but it's, it's not its intention, but our society does that with information all the time anyway, so you'll probably be fine, and I'm sure they're a hot seller. But it's actually meant instead to, to not instill that personal confidence, but Rather, this verse is to point to the one in whom we can have unwavering confidence, our confidence that's rooted in a dependence, our dependence that's secured in the grace and mercy of Christ. It goes on to say that the nations raged, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. In Psalms 2, God pays no regard to the rage of the nations. At his mere voice, the earth melts away. Also reminds me of God's response to Job. In Job 38, when he responds to the series of complaints, the series of inward focus and self-direction, where he says, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Goes on, God goes on to paint a picture of this vastness of creation and how God lives and through creation. Verse 7 stands... Alone, as, as a confident chorus, it reads, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The title God of Jacob not only emphasizes the aspect of God's covenant, but also grace, in that Jacob was kind of a rather shabby character, not necessarily known for his great holiness. This gracious mercy of God is an open refuge for his people, a safe fortress. Verse 8 and 9 go on to you be an exaltation declare of the Lord among the nations. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. If the dominant idea in the first section of the psalm is that God is a refuge and a help, here the emphasis shifts to the consideration of the glory of God. And then we hear from God himself. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. One should ask, what, what is the, the writer doing here? What is, the, what is happening? And I just wrote, like, is the Holy Spirit so deeply impressed on the heart of the writer? Does the writer know this and say it often, and it's just recorded here once? Be still. At the end of the song, talking about our confidence and who God is and what we've seen him do to his enemies, what have we seen, what have we seen him offer? In safe refuge, a fortress, the song ends with a statement reflected through the psalmist, be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. One writer suggests that in this setting, be still and know that I am God is not advice for us to, leave a more con to live a more complementive, contemplative? contemplative life, however important that is but rather it means to lay down your arms, surrender, and acknowledge that I am the one victorious God. Be still, and remember the cloud of smoke by day and the fire by night. Be still and know that I closed in on the Red Sea. Be still and know that I gave you manna in the desert. Be still and know that I command the earth and all that's in it, that creation obeys, and the enemies of God will be swallowed up in the earth. What amazing confidence, like blessed assurance. Be still. There's so many ways that we need to be still. The psalm closes with a confidence statement, wrapping up the entire song, that the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. 
you know, it, it's breezed through this passage, this psalm, but there's a couple really interesting things that I would just like to, to reflect on to, to leave you with this week as we, we have thought about um, this psalm. And because I, I think it shows a really interesting relationship to Psalms 42 and the, the sermon that Bob shared with us last Sunday. And, um, you know, Psalm 42, as I mentioned, has a heading in the Bible that says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? You know, last week, Bob talked of spiritual depression, a really, really interesting reminder and a really interesting refocus for us last week, that unexplainable and unsettling feeling of often void of illogical logical reasoning or deduction, the need David had to just share with God to pour himself out. And what I believe we're seeing in Psalm 46 is actually the next step to pouring yourself out, the next step in that response to emptying oneself is that refocus and by grace putting yourself in right alignment with who the creator of the universe is. The voice that moves water, that parts sea, the voice that causes the earth to open. This is a voice of triumph and victory that gives you the ability through grace and mercy to step outside yourself for a moment and to appreciate the creator of the earth. The gift of hope when all else looks hopeless. Just as the sons of Korah would have held, in the face of the greatest obstacles, those challenges were nothing for God who can open the earth and swallow his enemies. The song is a confidence statement that's designed to help realign their thinking. It isn't designed to erase their reality of the present situation. It's designed to give them fresh perspective. The opposite viewpoint, in my belief, is what often leads to addiction. Addiction is designed to mask and hide and remove the reality that you're in. And sadly, addiction of worse is worse and often as a result of missing a crucial step in aligning yourself with God or the result of a life not in relationship with God. This week I had a really neat opportunity to chat with two people and we were talking about life and, and um, how sometimes it's just terrible and it's just really, really hard. And uh, one conversation was with a person who is just really questioning some days on relationship with God, some days on connection with community, some days on connection with family, and all this stuff is just sitting there. And we've reflected on a parallel story of a person that I knew who walked hopeless outside of relationship with God and ultimately made decisions that left his family without him there a short time ago. We reflected on that and thought, like, what is that unexplainable, illogical something that just sits there in the bottom of us and that this hope, this hope that's been placed there by God that in the midst and in the face of these, this weight that we all carry, that, that God is there. And I, you know, just really reflect on how it's difficult. And it's not an exercise to brainwash yourself. It's not an exercise to forget the reality of now. But when I speak of addiction and opposition, I speak very personally from a position of being in a place where I understood that God, I understood the words that God was with me and that God was a fortress, but I never allowed myself to believe that. And so then What's left is to mask that pain instead of facing it. What's left is to put away that 
harsh reality instead of realizing that in the face of my enemies, God can open the earth. The creator of the earth can part water. God can speak to the land and have it move. You can use whatever metaphor you want of pain and trial and trouble. I allow myself not to understand, or pardon me, not to believe that. And addiction uh, is where I ended up, and I went down really dark roads for a long time, but I was blessed to have found myself, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a program that allowed for me to re- refocus, to readjust, to realize my place in God's created order. And that would be my hope um, today, you know. And I don't take that lightly because um, in the last almost 20 years, I've been blessed in so many different ways. But the last four, uh, blessed with the opportunity to do postgrad studies in intercultural relations studies and looking at the way people and cultures interact with their creation story with the God of the Bible. And it's fascinating because... Um, there's a number of different elements that we, we research in when it talks of cultures and the way they interact with God, because some of us might think cultures actually just interact with the English Bible and that every culture understands creation in the way we do, but it's not true. It's actually, I think, more beautiful in that God has revealed himself. Can you imagine that God has revealed himself to cultures outside of this text, preparing them for when they interact with the God of the Bible? And it's actually quite beautiful to study even more beautiful to hear someone speak about. But I was reflecting on the work of a professor, and this is his own story where, you know, he was also met with this position of kind of growing up outside of his culture and outside of the church, struggling with addiction, struggling with knowing who God is and what it means. And he had gone home. This was in uh, the United States, deep south, and he had gone home, and his ancestral stories was that the river having gone through their community uh, that you could hear the voice of God singing in the river if you were to swim in it and he remembered this story as a child a legend Uh, he wrote a book called finding God in the singing river and the legend foretold a uh, opportunity in community in the community in the past where it's a sacrifice story it's quite beautiful there was two tribes and um, at that time it was unspoken that one should interact with the other, that one should ever marry into the other. It would mean certain death. One was a very peaceful tribe, but one was very uh, hostile towards the other. And as love would happen, and call it a Shakespeare story, of course, one young person from one tribe and one young person from the other fell in love and secretly um, had a relationship. And as the story goes, the one tribe whose decision was a peaceful front actually chose together to walk themselves into the river, surrendering their lives for the greater community. And that story might seem funny to you, but what it did was it actually paved something inside this person's heart. His name's Mark Wallace, who said, as an adult, when I first was exposed to the Bible story, when I first was exposed to the creation story of the Christian church, something clicked in me, like I understand sacrificial love. I understand that someone could give themselves for another person. And I found it quite beautiful, and he articulates it far better than I could, where, you know, he writes about God imparting something in people, God imparting something there that when, through the work of whether evangelism or missions, it connects. And it's often my story with anyone engaging with the community. If you're engaging with someone on the downtown east side of Vancouver in addiction, or if you're engaging with someone 
outside of Tim Hortons this afternoon, asking yourself, God, what are you doing in this creation story? Where are you working? I think part of what we can do that's the most ignorant is assume that God's not stirring and doing something in the lives of people, in the lives of creation. And I just love so many stories uh, of different cultures that actually, when you see them in their practice putting community above individual, you see far less rates of depression, far less rates of suicide, and far less rates of theft when the individual is not greater than the community, when the betterment of the community moves forward and no individual is left behind. In cultures much like ours, in some Far East cultures, where all the weight and all the emphasis put on one individual and their ability, then actually you see the opposite, those rates far, far incline. So I was reflecting on Bob's work last week and, and just thinking about like, what is it that allows us to let ourselves sit in this? And I think it's really because we allow our own struggles and our own challenges to be that mountain in front of us. And so I don't say it flippantly when I say sometimes we need to get outside of ourselves. We actually need to get over ourselves in some respect and just step aside for a moment and refocus. Because I believe that's truly what the Sons of Korah were doing in this work. They took a moment, they said, you know, in the previous song, God, where are you? Why is my spirit so downcast? And in this song, they're saying, God, right, right, right. You open the earth for your enemies. You will cause the seas to part. I have my problems. You are greater than my problems. And it's really quite a beautiful place to rest. And it's actually very, very comforting. So God, thank you so much for um, the writers of the Psalms. God, thank you so much for your word and this opportunity to see your hand in creation far transcend our understanding, far transcend even what we learn about our community. God, help us to be a people that asks where you are and what you're doing in situations we find ourselves in. God, help us to see your hand at work in the lives of people around us, where we may be able to draw on experiences they have and say, I can introduce you to that that feeling. I can introduce you to the creator of the universe, the one you speak about that moves mountains in your world and who causes the earth to open. God, thank you for your word, and thank you so much that we are here in this community. Help us to remember that this community moves better together, and that an individualistic way of looking at theology and the way we operate in life is not helpful. Help us, God, to find community and to love each other well. In your name I pray. Amen.